Um, we'll continue to work on that in the weeks ahead. I will continue to work on that. Um, let's, uh, as, we, as we turn now our attention to Revelation 2 and uh, verses 18 through 29, uh, let's pray together, all right? Father, we come now um, to the preaching of your word. Lord, we, we want to hear you speak. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work by the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate us in this moment. Uh, Lord, I ask for myself that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, that I would serve with the strength that you supply. Um, Lord, that I would proclaim your word uh, and, and nothing less than your word. Lord, I pray that for each of us in this room, for every hearer, that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would open their eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our, our minds and our hearts to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would change us, shape us, teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when we began our series in Revelation a few weeks ago, I showed you uh, my attempt to sum up all of Revelation in one long sentence, and I'd like to remind you of that uh, summary today uh, and, uh, and kind of show how some of the pieces that we've looked at fit into this. In Revelation, Jesus reveals to his churches God's sovereign plan of judgment and redemption culminating in his second coming. So they would persevere in following him through this present evil world, enduring tribulation, resisting temptation, and bearing witness before the nations until the day God judges evil and Jesus leads them to victory and eternal life with him in the new creation. Now, as we've been looking at the seven messages to the seven churches, we've been seeing elements of this already. In these messages in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is calling his churches to persevere in following him through this present evil world. He wants us to conquer, as we've been seeing over and over. Uh, we saw how the church in Ephesus was losing their witness before the nations because they were losing their love. We saw the church in Smyrna was struggling to persevere because they were enduring tribulation. We saw the church in Pergamum was failing to follow the Lamb because they were failing to resist temptation. And in all of these messages, we've seen also Jesus' promise about the future. Jesus promises to lead the one who does conquer into victory and eternal life with him in the new creation. And so as we walk through this book section by section, uh, we look at all the, all the details and, and everything like that. I want to make sure that we're continually being reminded of the big picture, the overarching message of Revelation so that we can keep everything in perspective. Well, with that perspective in mind and that context in mind, let's read together Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, 
the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, as we begin today, let me ask you a question. How do you measure success? How do you measure success? Do you measure it by results, a bottom line, a return on investment? Do you measure success by the opinion of others, how people speak of you, your reputation? Do you measure success by accolades, a title, a position, a status? In the message to Thyatira, we see how Jesus measures success. It's simple. He says, keep my works until the end. Jesus calls us simply to be faithful to him and to follow him in obedience. That's it. You know, the, the draw of worldly success will pull at us from all sorts of different angles. It will tempt us to compromise our faithfulness to Christ for short-term gain. It will tempt us to overcomplicate success and miss the simple call of Christ to be faithful. But all Jesus wants for us is for us to keep his works until the end. And in this message to the church in Thyatira, he gives us the encouragement we need in order to do that. Jesus wants to show us 
that he sees our progress in good works. Where we are compromising with the world, he calls us to repent. Where we are practicing good works, he calls us to stay faithful. And he wants us to know that it will be worth it in the end. The message of Jesus to Thyatira, the message of Jesus to our church today, is keep Christ's works until the end. Keep Christ's works until the end. Well, how do we do this? Number one, remember who calls us to good works. Remember who calls us to good works. Jesus identifies himself in verse 18 this way. Uh, He says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus chooses three ways of identifying himself. First, the Son of God. He identifies himself as the Son of God. Now, the Son of God is a title for the Messiah, uh, the human who God would give authority and dominion over all nations. Well, earlier in our call to worship, we read Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, about uh, what God says to his anointed king, the Messiah. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It's a prophecy about the Messiah. The Messiah would be God's son. And this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus when he rose from the dead. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah who God has given dominion over the earth. So when you're tempted to compromise your faithfulness to Jesus in order to succeed in our culture and get ahead in our culture, remember who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of kings. Remember that his status is higher than the highest position of authority on the planet. Following Jesus now may not lead to earthly success, but we are serving the King who will reign forever. And he promises that if we endure, we will reign with him. Remember who he is as the son of God. Uh, The second way he identifies himself is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. Now, eyes like a flame of fire were part of the vision that John saw of Jesus back in chapter 1. And this is a picture of how Jesus sees all. He sees it all. He sees not only what we do on the outside, but he also sees what's going on on the inside of us. His eyes are like torches that light up the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts. He sees all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And we need to remember this when we are compromising with the world. It may be that what we're doing on the outside doesn't seem that bad. But in our hearts, we're loving the world more than we're loving Jesus. 
And we need to remember that our ungodliness is not hidden from Jesus' sight, even when it's not obvious on the outside. The one who will judge the living and the dead sees all. He is the one with eyes like a flame of fire. He also has feet like burnished bronze. Well, like eyes uh, like a flame of fire, this is coming from that opening vision of chapter 1. And on the one hand, this speaks to Jesus' power, this strong bronze. Uh, His feet are armed, ready to trample his enemies. Uh, But I believe there's more going on here in this picture as well. Uh, Back in Revelation 1.15, we're told that Jesus' feet were like bronze that had been refined in a furnace. And so here in Revelation 2, we have the Son of God whose feet have spent time in a furnace. Now, do you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I'll refresh your memory if not. They were exiles in Babylon, and they refused to bow down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so, as a punishment, they were cast into a fiery furnace. But when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, not only were the men alive, he also saw a fourth man, whom he said looked like a son of the gods. The son of God in the furnace. Now consider what this means for us. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are living in Babylon. Revelation describes the church as symbolically living in Babylon. For the church in Thyatira, Babylon was the Roman Empire. For us, Babylon is America. We're exiles. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we face pressure to bow down to the idols of our culture. But Jesus promises that if we will resist the draw of idolatry, he will reward us just like he rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so when you're tempted to grow weary in your works for Christ, remember who it is who calls us to these good works. When you're tempted by success, remember the Son of God who will reign forever and who can give us an eternal status. When you're tempted to think that you can hide your sin, remember the one with eyes like a flame of fire who sees all. And when you're tempted to fear what will happen to you if you don't bow down to the idols of our culture, remember the one whose feet are like bronze refined in a furnace. He will defeat the nations and their gods, and he walks with us in the fire. Remember who it is who calls us to good works and keep Christ's works until the end. Second, if we are to keep Christ's works until the end, we need to know that Jesus sees our progress in good works. Know that Jesus sees our progress in good works. Jesus praises the church in Thyatira in verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith 
and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. The one who has eyes like a flame of fire doesn't just see our sin. He also sees our good works and how we're growing in godliness. Jesus praises the church in Pergamum for four areas. First, for their love. So unlike the church in Ephesus who had lost the love they had at first, this church is a church marked by love. Uh, Second, their faith. Like the church in Pergamum, uh, the church in Thyatira was loyal to Christ. He praises them for their faith. A third, for their service. Uh, This was a church that was hardworking in meeting practical needs. Uh, Fourth, their patient endurance. Uh, In the face of temptation to give up their good works, they held fast, they pressed on. And they were growing stronger in these areas. Their latter works exceeded the first. This was a church that made Jesus attractive. They were passionate about Jesus. They were helping their community. They were hardworking. They were excelling. And Jesus wanted them to know, I see that. He's going to go on and talk about the things they need to repent of. He'll get there. But he doesn't start there. He starts with saying, I see. I see your growth. I see where you're excelling. And we need to remember that Jesus sees our progress in good works as well. Now, we have our problems. But Jesus still sees where we are growing. We have our sins. We have our areas in which we need to still grow more. But all of those problems that we have, even even grotesque sins like we have in Revelation 2, those don't keep Jesus from seeing the areas in which we are excelling. He sees how you've been putting others before yourself. He sees how you've been holding on to him even when it seems impossible. He sees how you have been sacrificing to meet the needs of others even when no one else knows that you've done that. Even when no one else sees, Jesus sees. He sees your growth in good works. It's important for us to remember that Jesus sees us. I think it's also important that we remember this is how Jesus sees other churches as well. You know, we're a church that's serious about biblical doctrine. We're serious about biblical practice and biblical morality. And I think it would be easy for us, if the church in Thyatira was the church down the street, it would be easy for us to look down on that kind of a church. Maybe all we see about the church in Thyatira is how they tolerate that Jezebel who's leading people astray. And we see their works, but the worldliness that they have kind of taints the value of that love and faith and service and endurance for us. But that's not how Jesus sees it. Jesus, yes, I mean, he wants them to repent of their worldliness. He wants... um, them to, to, to repent. He, I mean, and it's deathly serious, as we're about to see. But he's still pleased by their growth in good works. So may we know that Jesus sees our progress in good works and let that motivate us to keep Christ's work 
until the end. Well, third, if we are to keep Christ's works, as we've already indicated, we must repent of worldly works. Repent of worldly works. Jesus sees the good. He praises Thyatira for the ways in which they're growing. But then in verse 20, he goes on to rebuke them, and he rebukes them for their tolerance. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This church had given a platform to a woman who was teaching believers that they could participate in the ungodly practices of the culture around them. Jesus calls her Jezebel, uh, referring to a woman from Israel's history, kind of like he did with Balaam, uh, as we saw in the passage last week. Jezebel was a Gentile woman whom uh, Ahab, the king of Israel, married. And Jezebel led Ahab and many Israelites into the false worship of uh, the false god, Baal. She was a catalyst for much sexual immorality and idolatry within Israel. So it's no surprise then that Jesus calls this false prophetess in Thyatira Jezebel. He says she was teaching Jesus' servants that they could practice sexual immorality and idolatry, and she was seducing them into actually practicing these things. Now, in Thyatira, these were practices that were tied to the local trade guilds or unions, we might call them today. If you wanted to practice your trade in Thyatira, you had to be a member of one of the trade guilds. That's how you were to succeed in your industry. But each guild had its own god. And being a part of the guild meant you were a worshiper of the guild's god. You were expected to participate in feasts of worship to the guild's god. And these feasts would inevitably lead to sexual immorality as well. So Christians had to choose, am I going to be successful in my career, or am I going to stay faithful to Christ? Now where Jezebel, as she's called, came in and confused matters, is she was teaching, oh, you don't actually have to choose. You can do both. You can do all of these worldly practices and get ahead in your career, and you can still be a faithful Christian. You can have it both ways. The seduction of worldliness is strong, and, and we see this not only in this passage, but all throughout Revelation. One of the warnings that Jesus wants to give us, he wants to paint a picture of how seductive worldliness is, how alluring Babylon is. Toward the end of the book, in Revelation 17 and 18, John is going to see a, a vision of the prostitute Babylon. She's beautiful. She's luxurious. Revelation 18.15 says that the merchants of the world gained their wealth from her. Yet, she seduces the world 
and to idolatry and sexual immorality. And this was the temptation that the Christians in Thyatira were facing. Give in to sexual immorality and idolatry with Babylon and you'll gain wealth from her. Do you hear Jezebel's voice trying to seduce you? Do you hear the allure of Babylon trying to deceive you into compromise? You know, this is just what you have to do to make it. Oh, it's okay to go along with it as long as you don't really mean it in your heart. Hey, you got to do what it takes to provide for your family. God doesn't want to keep you from being successful. Oh, it's not flirting. It's just good, good customer service. Well, you know, th- those commands about sexuality were really just for that culture of that time. Uh, they don't apply today. Hey, hey, stop being so legalistic about sex. Lo- love is love. Do you hear the voice of Jezebel? Do you hear Babylon seducing you? If you are giving in to the deception and seduction of Babylon, Jesus calls you to repent. Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, now notice that phrase, I gave her time to repent. That is pure mercy. Do you see Jesus' mercy in that? When we're in sin, he doesn't snap to condemn us. He gives us time to repent. And you may say, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I've been operating this way for a while. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with it. But just because Jesus hasn't responded yet does not mean he is being tolerant. He is being patient. And this is kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. In the case of the false prophetess in Thyatira, she was refusing to repent despite the fact that Jesus had given her time. And so Jesus warns what will happen if she and her followers do not repent. In verses 22 and 23, he says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Those who have followed the false prophetess into compromise and worldliness must repent. They must repent of her works, these works and practices that she has led them to do. And he says, if her followers do not repent, He will bring judgment. Jesus says, I will strike her children dead. He views this Jezebel as a mother and those that she's led astray as her children. Now, this is probably not the Mother's Day sermon you thought you were going to hear. (laughs) Um, But, okay, so here's, here's my Mother's Day encouragement to you mothers out there, okay? If you're discouraged feeling like you're a bad mother, just remember, 
you're a better mother than Jezebel. Okay? So just take that with you. Be encouraged today. But in all seriousness, Jesus here is promising judgment. I think it's easy for us to think of uh, the God of the Old Testament as the God of judgment, and the Jesus of the New Testament is just all love and acceptance. But Jesus is identified as the judge of the living and the dead. He's the one with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He's the one with eyes a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. And Jesus promises here the judgment of great tribulation or distress. You know, all of life in a fallen world is an experience of tribulation. We see tribulation all throughout Revelation. That's just the normal uh, status quo for uh, Christians in a fallen world. But this is something more than just everyday tribulation that he's promising. Jesus is promising, the, uh, he's warning about not just kind of general distress here, He's not even just saying that they will receive, you know, kind of the natural consequences that come from sin. He is promising his deliberate action of judgment. Uh, He specifically mentions the judgment of of illness, this uh, putting her on a sickbed, and then warning that he will strike her children dead. So it seems that he's warning these people that he will bring a fatal illness upon them. That's going to be his judgment if they do not repent. When Jesus brings judgment, though, we need to understand that that actually brings him glory. When Jesus brings judgment, that brings him glory. Look at verse 23. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. When Jesus judges those who refuse to repent, it sends a message to all his churches. He is the one with eyes like a flame of fire. He sees your thoughts and your desires, and he judges justly. He gives people what their sins deserve. Jesus will not tolerate sin. And we should not either. How is the Holy Spirit convicting you of compromise even now? In what ways are you choosing wealth and career to the detriment of your faithfulness to Christ? How are you giving in to the false gods of this world? How are you compromising on God's will for sexuality? It may be that in your heart right now, you're feeling some heat. Because the one with eyes like a flame of fire is illuminating sin in the deep, dark recesses of your heart. And you just need to know that is his mercy. The worst 
thing Jesus could do for you is to leave you in your sin and let you have what you want. But in his mercy, he shines his light on our sin and he exposes it for what, he, what it is. If Jesus is convicting you of sin this morning, that is his invitation to you to repent. It's his invitation to you to receive his mercy because the one with eyes aflame of fire is also the one who went to the cross and who received the judgment of God that we deserve for our sins so that he could cleanse those who are guilty. He could cleanse those who deserve his judgment. Jesus wants to extend mercy to you. He wants to give you forgiveness and cleansing. He wants to bring you back to the path of righteousness, of following him. So if the Lord is convicting you today, don't stiff arm him. Let him expose your sin. Confess it to him. Receive his cleansing, his forgiveness, his mercy, and find hope in Jesus. Repent of worldly works and keep Christ's works until the end. Well, finally, if we are to keep Christ's works until the end, we should seek the reward of good works. And we see this in the last section of this message. Not everyone in the church in Thyatira had bought into the teaching of Jezebel. Uh, Jesus gives the others a word of encouragement in verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus says that the teaching of Jezebel was called the deep things of Satan. You know, one of the hallmarks of false teaching is that they promise deep things. They promise that there's some hidden knowledge, some deeper truth that the simple-minded don't know. And in this way, false teachers echo Satan, who said, did God actually say? In Genesis 3, he went on and he said, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What Eve and Adam were missing was the deep things of Satan. So these this false teaching, this false teacher Jezebel was promising deep things, deeper things, additional things, more things. And Jesus does just the opposite. Whereas Jezebel said, you need to add these deep things. Jesus speaks to those who haven't compromised and he says, I do not lay on you any other burden. Instead, he says, hold on to what you have. He says, I've already given you what you need. I've already given you what is sufficient for you. You don't need more. I'm not going to lay on any other burden. Just hold on to what you have. And by the way, let, us, let that be a lesson to us, both as disciples of Jesus and as disciple makers. 
You know, when we're trying to avoid sin or we want to help others avoid sin, it can be tempting to lay on other burdens beside, besides what Jesus has given us in his word. It can be tempting to lay on extra rules and practices in the name of protecting against sin. But that's not what Jesus does. He just calls us to hold on to what he has already given us, to his sufficient word. And he makes a promise. What if we do? What if we do just hold on and keep his works? Well, verses 26 and 27 says this, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus promises the one who conquers, the one who keeps Christ's works until the end, will share his dominion. This is a promise rooted, again, in Psalm 2, which we've already looked at a couple of times uh, today. In Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, God makes this promise to his anointed king. He says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this is a passage about the Messiah's authority over the nations. And these words of Psalm 2 are going to come up over and over again throughout Revelation about Christ's authority and his role as king above all kings. But what's noteworthy about the promise of this message to Thyatira is Jesus is promising not just his authority, he's promising to share his authority. He's promising to share his dominion as the Messiah with those who conquer and keep his works until the end. Jesus promises if we will keep his works until the end, he will bring us into his reign. He will give us dominion like his father gave him dominion. Revelation 22, 5 says this about what it's going to be like for the people of Christ in the new heavens and new earth. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, then right on the heels of that, Jesus makes another promise in verse 28. He says, I will give him the morning star. And uh, this is really a promise that is very much closely related to the promise he's already made. Um, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus identifies himself as the morning star. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And this imagery of the star uh, connects back to a prophecy about the Messiah that God gave actually through Balaam, interestingly enough. We looked at him last week. And uh, this prophecy is very similar to Psalm 2. In Numbers 24, 17, Balaam said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. So for Jesus to be the bright morning star is for him to be the promised Messiah, the descendant of David, who will conquer all the nations of the earth. Jesus is promising 
the one who conquers, that he will give him the morning star. If we conquer, we get Jesus himself. The king of all kings is our king. And the Messiah will share his reign with us. He will bring us into the purpose that he had for humanity from the very beginning, to have dominion over the earth. So as you follow Jesus, keep your eye on the prize. Instead of living to climb the corporate ladder, live for the day that we will reign with Christ. Instead of enjoying the best that Babylon has to offer, live today as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Seek the reward of good works and keep Christ's works until the end. So as we close, you need to ask yourself, how will you measure success? How will you measure success? What pathway is the successful pathway? Whose opinion matters the most? What status is most desirable to you? May we, rem may we remember the simple truth that true success is keeping Christ's works until the end. Now that may cost us. It may mean we don't get that promotion. It may mean we don't get to enjoy all of the pleasures that our neighbors get to enjoy. It may mean that we're not praised, but the cost is worth it. Keep Christ's works until the end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, You have given us grace in Christ, and you tell us in your word that the same grace that saves us is grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live upright, self-controlled lives, to be zealous for good works as we await the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that that would be our heart. I pray that we would receive your grace, receive your forgiveness, receive justification, receive the free gift of salvation. And Lord, that along with it, we would receive your grace that trains us to keep your works until the end. I pray that you would help us resist temptation. Help us resist the pull and seduction of the world. Help us to grow in godliness, uh, to keep the faith, to endure as your saints. Lord, I pray that even this week, as we go about our lives as exiles in Babylon, uh, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see where the seduction of Babylon is pulling us away from Christ, that you give us eyes to see where we are buying into the voice of Jezebel, and Lord, that we would repent and that we would be protected so that we would be content to just be faithful to Jesus, even when it costs us. Lord, would we be so focused 
on the end and on eternity. Lord, that we are clear about what success means today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.